number 96-552, Rachel Agostini versus Betty Louise Felton in a consolidated case. Uh, General Dellinger. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. We ask you today to overrule Aguilar because it is inconsistent with this Court's Establishment Clause decisions and because it continues to impose burdens that seriously impair the federal government's critical Title I program. I'd like to discuss both the reasons why we believe that this is an appropriate procedural posture for the reconsideration of Aguilar, and why we believe that a decision to overrule Aguilar need not require any major doctrinal revisions of this Court's Establishment Clause jurisprudence. In brief, the critical features that support the constitutionality of on-premises services under Title I and the lifting of the outstanding injunctions are these. Unlike all of this Court's other primary and secondary parochial school aid cases, this case involves an act of Congress that provides new and additional resources to both public and private school students. Ninety-seven percent of the funding under Title I goes to children who are in public schools. These services are completely secular. They're required by law only to supplement and not to supplant any necessary educational General services. General yes. you're not suggesting that an act of Congress should be treated any differently than an act of a state legislature, are you, for purposes of establishment clauses? No, I am not, Mr. Chief Justice. What I uh, intend to suggest by that is that many of the state uh, acts that this Court has struggled over provided funds, since there was a background of public education, provided funds just for non-public schools. The Ohio Act and Walden against Walters was an $88 million appropriations for the non-public schools. This is a national act where Congress is, for the first time in 1965, trying to deal with the problem of low-income, uh, learning disabled and learning handicapped children nationwide and providing funds uh, to so broad a group of the 6.4 million, for example, 6.2 million went to public schools. To so broad do you, a group. you take the position that Congress, or for that matter a state, uh, could simply appropriate money generally for the teaching of secular subjects and that money could go into the parochial schools without a, a First Amendment problem? Uh, we do not, Justice Souter. Well, uh, how do you draw the line? You've spoken of this as being a supplementation of what is regularly done, but as I understand it, uh, the money is spent on, on what are called remedial programs. In other words, if a group of children or a child cannot read at whatever the grade level, this money is, is used to provide special uh, training. But it seems to me that what that boils down to is teaching a child to read or teaching a child who can't add how to do math. I don't see what the distinction is between the supplementation and simply the school's normal mission to teach reading or to teach math or whatever the secular subject is. Uh, Justice Souter, I think it is well established that, though I do agree that there's no bright line between remedial mathematics and other math, but what is critical is that the federal Title I money was so clearly intended to be, and the statute and the regulations require it to be, a supplementation that goes to the benefit of these low-income needy children that I do not think the que this case raises the question that would be raised when taxpayer funding takes over a significant portion of the regular educational curriculum. That is, the, it is not unfamiliar throughout federal law for Congress to have requirements, as, as Title I does, that the funds should be used to supplement and in no case supplant the level of services that would, in the absence of this funding, have been available. Well, what if Congress comes along and says uh, every school district in the United States that spends less than X dollars per pupil 
uh, will be subject to, to supplementation uh, by, by federal grants for the teaching of secular subjects, and this money can go to parochial as well as private schools. Would that fall under the rubric of, of, uh, of legitimacy that you urged this morning? And if you describe it, I believe that that would cause a more far-reaching revision of the court's establishment clause jurisprudence than anything. How would we draw the line? Congress would say this is a supplement for poor school districts. Uh, we, you draw the line here because this appropriation has none of the indicia of Congress providing the support that then enables the institution to engage in its religious function more fully. For example, well, it, in, in it, 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 it allows parochial schools to teach reading better than they could teach it otherwise, just as public schools can teach reading better than they could teach it or are teaching it otherwise. So I don't, I don't see how we draw the line. Well, first of all, that is, of course, as true under the program as it has existed from 1965 to 1997, as it is under the uh, the issue that is before us today, there's the same supplementation. Except that at least an attempt is made to to draw a a, a visual line, if you will, uh, between what the what the school is is ultimately accomplishing and the the secular source by which it is accomplishing this extra objective. There's an attempt made to avoid uh, you know, an, an appearance endorsement kind of problem, and on your scheme, there wouldn't be an attempt made. Here, I believe the attempt is not only made, but it is fully successful differ to differentiate this program from a program like Grand Rapids versus Ball, which we are not challenging, which we, uh, uh, in this submission at all. General it's, Dellinger, I, yes. I assume that it enables a parochial school to uh, teach better if you uh, allow a, uh, a person who knows sign language to enable uh, its uh, deaf students to uh, understand what is being taught in the class better. That enables a parochial school to do its job. Of course it does, Justice Scalia. As does, We've proved that, haven't we? And, and, in Zobrist, you approve that. It is accepted. You can have school lunch programs. You can have health programs. We have a wide range of, uh, of programs. Zobrist and Withers, I think, are decisions by this court that have clearly... We've crossed that line. You have, you have, you have crossed the line. We've crossed the lines then to the point of saying that any aid for the teaching of a secular subject in a parochial school is therefore uh, uh, constitutional. I don't think you have crossed that line for this reason. If you take a case like Grand Rapids that has a very different profile, where 40 of the 41 schools that were benefited were sectarian schools, unlike the 3% here, and where the courses that were provided were courses provided that were part of the, of the school curriculum. In fact, they were ordered up by the school. They were much more woven into the normal school day. This is a Title I service which is provided to kids low-income, educationally deprived children who need this service. And what this court's decisions, I believe, in Zobrest and Withers and Bowen against Kendrick reject is an arbitrary, rigid, formalistic notion that you cannot have those services provided by a public employee who is hired, fired, supervised, and paid by other public employees inside the school building, but instead you must make children, and in this case, a majority of these kids are in grades one to three, seven percent of non-high school. Yes. Uh, General Dellinger, may I deflect you for a moment because you're launching right into the merits as you did in your brief, and you have to get your foot in the door properly. Um, 
I do not know of any use ever of 60B, such as we see here, essentially to gain rehearing by this court. So if, if you could spend just a couple of moments. Uh, I would be glad to, Justice Ginsburg. You are correct that this, we do not know of another instance in which Rule 60B has been used in this way. That may be for very good reason. That is, the understandable reasons may be that they're in a, in a messy and complicated country like ours. There are usually lots of other cases that bubble up, other jurisdictions that simply don't comply with this court's holdings. But here, the Secretary of Education will not permit any school district in the United States to provide these services on premises so that there is, uh, there is for that reason, unlikely to be an issue. Now, in terms what of... The, what about the two cases that are, are there not cases involving state laws similar to Title I, one in Louisiana, and the other, is it in Minnesota? Uh, two responses. First of all, as I said, I think uh, those may well be different than a program of the breadth of Title I. But secondly, there is no suggestion there have been a series of cases where the, the, the provision of these Title I services off-premises has been challenged. The courts have upheld against Establishment Clause challenge those cases, and, the, and the, those who brought the case have not sought certiorari in this court. I, I, I think that there must be some way for a court to modify one of its own prior judgments that has continuing prospective effect. I'm just curious, why can't the Secretary of Education create a test case if, if, if uh, I mean, why, why couldn't... Because he believes... You said the law has changed, yes. in our opinion, and therefore we think in this particular, you know, deliberately do it in order to raise the issue. In a that is a fair enough question, uh, Justice Breyer. I believe that the, that the Office of Legal Counsel's proper response would be, though we read the law to have changed since Aguilar, we do not believe that the Secretary of Education, any more than a district court judge, should go directly in the teeth of a, of a decision of this court, which this court has not itself overturned. Well, in fact, I think we that's, that's part of the problem, General Dellinger, really, because we're reviewing, are we, uh, a, an, an action by the district court judge? Yes, you are. Under 60B. And yes. we have to find that that judge abused discretion in refusing the 60B reopening. And yet that judge could look at Aguilar and say, uh, I just don't have room to do that. That's the Supreme Court's holding. How am I supposed to reopen this case? How do we deal with that? Uh, just I mean, it isn't as though it's coming directly yes, no, to this court. No, that, that, that is correct. We're reviewing the action of the district court. So, that is so correct. what standard do we apply there? How did the district court abuse its discretion in saying, boy, it isn't up to me? <laughs> you approach that exactly as you do a case in which you're up on a preliminary injunction. But the question is the, is the rule of law. And this court has held that the abuse of, of, of power general standard, which is a discretionary standard for the orderly administration of justice, cannot force this court into making an erroneous decision of law just because a district court on a preliminary injunction or in this context or any other got it wrong as a matter of General law. But, but the, focus, the focus, it seems to me, of Justice O'Connor's question is what, what do you tell the district judge? If you're the law clerk for the district judge or the, the counselor to the district judge, one of the attorneys, what do you tell him he should do in this case? It seems a little strange to say he abused his discretion by following the law. On the other hand, uh, we, we know uh, that abuse of this discretion is, is, is sometimes uh, a, 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 a too onerous word to describe what the, what the phrase to describe what the judge has done. Uh, He's made a mistake of law. Uh, Justice Souter, you 
I'm sorry, Justice Kennedy, you, you, you informed the district judge, as he anticipated in this case, that the rule of law he was required to apply is not what this court believes is, is currently the rule of law. Isn't it so that under our precedent, a district judge is locked in, he has no authority to overturn a decision of this court, and indeed the district judge would have abused his discretion if he said, I predict that the Supreme Court is going to overrule Aguilar? If he followed that by ruling and uh, not applying Aguilar, you're exactly correct. And, and we told the district judge that. And the Court of Appeals both said, I think, quite correctly, right. that they, there was nothing that they could do. So if, we, if we're going to be candid about what's involved here, isn't it really a request for rehearing by this court? And the 60B is just a pass-through because stage one and stage two cannot do anything but reject the application. Your premises are correct, but the conclusion is wrong, and it's wrong for this reason. This, could, this would be no different if a new case were brought, if, they, if there were a new school system that started providing new services in school. Under a lawsuit, the district court in that case, in Chicago or Milwaukee or wherever, would be just as bound by analog itself, and it's a district judge in the Southern District of New York. And the school district could appeal the denial of the order that it wanted, and this court could rule on it without, in effect, granting a rehearing on a prior case in which the judgment was final. That is, that's the way that is correct, but I would, not that this is, I would not think this is, in effect, a rehearing, because it is quite useful to have the screening mechanism of district courts. Well, well, it may be useful, but I don't see on your principle why any losing litigant subject to a continuing order cannot come in at any subsequent time, so long as that order remains pending, and say, perhaps for very good reason, I would like another shot at arguing the law. The reason is Rule 11 sanctions, if there's no predicate for it. The Why should there be a Rule 11 sanction if this is allowed? Because, Justice Souter, what this permits is a party who has got a basis for believing that an injunction, which has continuing effect, no longer reflects the law of the Constitution, to seek to have that injunction lifted. I think Do you rely great. on the fact that this is a continuing injunction? Does that somehow enter into the calculus and make your response different? Justice O'Connor, it is, it is critical to the calculus. It is critical to the calculus because it would raise a very serious question about the role of courts and judges in a constitutional democracy if a party did not have a way to be relieved from a court order. It is of course... Why, why is that so? Why, should, why shouldn't a party have one opportunity to litigate the case and if then through some other means the law changes, whether it be a statutory change or whether through other litigation uh, this court takes a different turn, then the party can come in and say, you have changed the law and therefore it's inequitable to, to leave me subject to it. Uh, that's a very different thing from saying it's inequitable to leave me with only one opportunity to litigate the law in my case. Excuse me, I, I thought that the claim here was that the law has changed. That is indeed the, the decision case. in this case hasn't changed, but I thought, right. the, I thought the assertion is that the law has changed. Our point would be, for how many years or, or, or decades would you expect a party to be under an order which would be tolerable if it reflects the Constitution, but if it just rests upon a judge's determination. Which the, premise, the premise of your argument was that the law had not changed 
And that's why it was not error for the district court to rule as it did. You're saying that the law has to change in this case before this court. And Lauren, just add to that that this court did tell district judges in quite clear terms, it's not your job to predict that the Supreme Court that is going to overrule. That is correct. That, that is why we told the district court to do precisely what it did in this case. Did the district court follow the law or not? Did the district court follow the law or not? Justice Stevens, the precise answer is that the district court followed the binding effect of this court's decision in Aguilar, which we believe no longer reflects the law of the Constitution as it has been articulated by this court in Zobrex, in Ritters, in Mergen, in Bowen v. Kendrick, and other cases. I was going to ask you yes or no. I'm sorry. The question is... I do what the Chief Justice often does. The answer is either yes or no. Did the district court follow the law? Yes. But the law he followed was by the binding force of the court's decision in Aguilar v. Felton, a decision which we believe these litigants who are spending one, who have spent $100 million complying with Aguilar, a decision that cost the Secretary $300 million a year in deadweight social loss, that they are entitled to come before you and to tell you that they, while that is tolerable if it reflects the Constitution, since there are decisions that are anchored that indicate that it does not, the question is whether the popularly elected officials at the local, state, and national level should be bound merely because judges won't say so. Where do we have a different way? General Dellinger, we should have, or Congress should authorize, some proceeding for rehearing out of time by this court. But we're talking about stages below this court where there is nothing that they can do except pass the question up to this court. And then this court will rehear a case that was decided. Justice Ginsburg, that is precisely what would happen in any suit brought to challenge Aguilar in any case by any litigant in this country. It would be passed up because Aguilar is binding on every district in Congress. And this court has passed it. But that's not quite so, is it? And even in the cases like Title I that are in district courts, there's a record being developed. It's a different case. And isn't that so? That is correct. And there is a record here which could be supplemented on remand. But when Rule 60B says that you can get relief where it is no longer equitable, that such a judgment should have prospective application. Civil procedure addressed to the district court. And here the district court can't do anything. Because of this court's holding. But this court, however, can, as it could from any district court, revise that ruling. I will reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you. Very well, General Dellinger. Mr. Carney. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. New York City school children who are poor and educationally disadvantaged are not getting the Title I educational help they need because of Aguilar. Many are receiving remedial education that is less effective than it could be. And the expensive alternatives mandated by Aguilar are taking money that could be used in educating poor, educationally disadvantaged children and spending it on buses and lease sites. In the 1993-94 school year, there were 260,000 students who received Title I instruction in New York City. This is from a larger pool of 350,000 to 400,000 who were eligible but couldn't get it because funds weren't available. Approximately 8% or 22,000 of those Title I students attend parochial school. 
those children received instruction either on buses or uh, uh, with computer-assisted instruction. 11,000 were educated on a bus. 7,500 received computer-assisted instruction. Each of these, according to the Secretary of Education, uh, is not an effective method, and it uh, makes it uh, difficult to give a quality education. If you look at the buses, and there's a picture of the bus in the record, it's noisy because it needs its own generating capacity, so you have generator noises. It's parked on the city street in New York City. It's very noisy. It's cramped. There are 10 students and a teacher cramped into the back of the bus. There are small windows. The windows themselves are caged. There's no bathrooms, and there's no storage room in these buses, so that the teacher does not have access to books and instructional materials, which would be very helpful in discharging the Title I teacher's responsibility. And it's these children's fault for going to parochial school, I assume. They could have gone to public school, couldn't they? Well, no. In New York City, public schools, Your Honor, uh, are terribly overcrowded right now. And uh, I think they would receive, uh, it'd be very difficult for them to uh, uh, receive an education in public schools simply because the public schools are so crowded. On the other hand, it's their parents' absolute choice under this court's uh, teaching that they should have an opportunity to educate their uh, children well, in a parochial school. Suppose, suppose that it is very expensive and, and impractical. Uh, for the program involved to comply with the establishment clause. That doesn't mean that there's no establishment violation, does there? Or, or does there? Is, is, is establishment the, just no, the, no, a question of practicality? Justice Kennedy, no, of course not. Uh, the establishment clause, if it did require these expenses, well, then we'd have to pay these expenses. There's no doubt about that. The, the, the issue here really is, in light of the court's change in, in uh, changing jurisprudence with regard to establishment clause in Zobrest, uh, in Witters. Is, is it a change? I mean, what, what is your response, basically, to Judge Friendly's opinion in Fenton? Well, uh, my answer, uh, Justice Breyer, is that there's a, been a substantial change. But what, what, but what on the merits? I mean, this, this hasn't been... The, I found that a rather powerful argument on the other side, Judge Friendly's opinion, purely on the merits, leaving precedent and so forth out of it. So if, if, if that's right in the front of your mind, if it's not, I'll, I'll ask more specifically, or... Is that opinion, are you pretty familiar with it? Yes, I am. Here. All right, so what, is, what would your response be to Judge Friendly in, in, on, on the merits of the issue? Well, on the merits, uh, Your Honor, I would say that uh, that is no longer the applicable law. He, he has a number, four or five reasons, why in terms of the basic purposes of the Establishment Clause. It makes sense, so of course you'll get bizarre cases. Of course it will mean added expense. Of course it's not bad for a child to be in parochial school, it's good. But in terms of the basic purposes of the Establishment Clause, he points out why that line is a helpful, though sometimes irrational line. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what your response to that is. The answer is basically it was along the lines Justice Souter was saying earlier, but I don't want to characterize it. If you're familiar with it, I... The, the answer, Your, Your Honor, I believe is that under the teaching, not reflected in Judge Friendly's decision because it occurred subsequently and in this court in Zobrest where you had a, a child who was handicapped, uh, what the court said was when you have a broad program of, uh, of benefits that are available to everyone regardless of the religion, it can't be denied to that particular child because he happens to be going right, to a parochial so school. It's quite clear that a handicapped child, one who uh, is, is a particularly strong case for breaching the line about sending the public school teachers into the schools. But then once that line is breached, is it then logical that you could have science taught for the lower third in the class, math, etc.? 
What Judge Friendly was worried about was breaching a line. Well, the line here, Your Honor, is uh, uh, unlike uh, in, in pro excuse me in public schools under Title I, where they have area-wide schools where, where enough of the population is uh, in poverty, they make the, t the entire school Title I eligible, and all kinds of things happen. That's not available in the parochial schools. Parochial schools only get a very thin slice. They don't get science courses. They don't get enhanced reading courses. They get remedial courses, and it's remedial English and remedial math, and English is a second language. And they're not taught, unlike the, uh, uh, the uh, Grand Rapids situation or the Meek situation, they are not taught by uh, uh, parochial teachers being funded by uh, uh, public funds. They are, fund they, they are uh, taught by public school teachers. Mr. Crotty, Justice Breyer suggests that, that there is a line between a physical handicap and a mental handicap, which is what these children are laboring under. Do you agree well, that you can draw a line between those two? Well, I don't agree with that uh, at all, Your Honor, and I don't think that's a constitutionally significant uh, 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 the, the reason line. would be, I suppose, that the, the, the basic line is as to whether or not large numbers of public school teachers are going to be physically in the parochial school. And we have a whole list in the opinion of problems that grow out of that. And well, now this court's created an exception to that. And the exception, I take it, is in the situation where it's hardest for a child physically to leave the school. Well, it's hard for these children to physically leave the school, and it's terribly disappointing. So what, what, in your opinion, then, is the line? Is the line that it is okay under the Establishment Clause to send large numbers of public school teachers into the parochial schools in order to teach what? A third of the class? The lower third? Any secular subject? All secular subjects? What, in your opinion, well, is the line? What I ask only, Your Honor, in reversing uh, Aguilar, is that the Title I program go forward. Uh, within the parochial schools, it's, it's not all parochial children that receive this instruction. And even within the parochial schools that get the instruction, it's not all the children within, within uh, the, that particular parochial school which is receiving the Title I instruction. What I'm suggesting is that when you have a narrow, well-defined program which can be monitored to make sure that the concerns that Justice Friendly had, uh, Judge Friendly had, are not really applicable. And we've had 30 years' experience on the record of this case. There hasn't been a single case and Mr. Geller has been litigating now for 30 years on this case, there is not a single case where he can demonstrate that a public school teacher has had his mind or her mind so overwhelmed that they began to teach uh, uh, secu excuse me, sectarian topics. So what I would say, Your Honor, is there's been a change in the jurisprudence, and there's no facts that would support the hypothesized concerns that Judge Friendly uh, What does the record tell us about the amount of monitoring that goes on in the buses to find out what the teachers do? The same amount of monitoring, uh, Your Honor, goes on in the buses that it would go on in public school. What, what is that amount of monitoring? The, I think the teachers are visited once a month by their supervisors, and uh, or once or twice a year, depending on the, the teacher's uh, tenure status under the uh, collective bargaining rules, they get an evaluative uh, study. They're, they're visited in the bus, so some, somebody comes into the bus once a month? They're, they're visited once a month in a bus, and then there's an evaluation study either once or twice a year, depending upon the uh, union. Uh, Have there the been any fact-finding hearings on what's happened during the last 30 years? Chris, this, I guess this case was dismissed right on the pleadings, wasn't it? Well, uh, after, after, a full, motion. after a full record was made in a preceding case called the Pearl One case, which was a three-judge court case, and then appeal was taken here to the Supreme Court, and uh, it was out of time, and so it was dismissed. That record was then incorporated into the Aguilar record. There's since been a hearing, Your Honor, on uh, uh, a related attack to our compliance 
uh, with uh, the Title I program as constituted after Aguilar as to whether that violates the Establishment Clause. So there's been two hearings on this, one in 1978 and one just recently concluded in 1996. There's been more than an adequate uh, opportunity to make, make this case on the facts. It hasn't been made. Mr. Crotty, we're still looking for a limiting principle. You, you referred to the Zobrest situation. You could say in Zobrest that the particular child either had to get the services in the parochial school or the child simply could not go and learn in a parochial school because there, was no, there could be no communication. So that at least is a possible limiting principle between, as Judge, uh, Justice Breyer was saying, the concerns that Judge Friendly raised uh, and, uh, and, and the, the claim that was being made in Zobrest. Uh, in, in effect, that was the only way to allow the child to have the education. Is there any limiting principle here between what you are asking and a broader support for secular education in the schools, in the, in the parochial schools? The limitations, Your Honor, uh, are contained in the regulations. Uh, no, but that's not a constitutional limitation. Is there any constitutional principle that this court could look to uh, to support the position that you are making? I would say that a program that is limited and uh, made available only to those who objectively need it without regard to their religion would be a program that is uh, constitutionally uh, permitted and consistent with the court's teaching in Zobrist. Thank, Thank you, Mr. Carney. Uh, Mr. Uh, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief uh, Justice, and may it please the uh, court, uh, the respondents in this case have tried very hard uh, to adhere to the facts of this case, and we have pointed out repeatedly that this case deals with not, not the statute, and I hear questions all about the statute. When we brought this case first, Many years ago, we brought it to challenge the New York City plan uh, for Title I in religious schools. And I point this out to you at the outset, uh, because something has been said about 97% of the aid in Title I going to public schools. That, of course, raises no question. There is no question about using public funds for public school students. Now, hear this fact about, and it is a fact... For private school students. I okay. suppose you have no problem with using those public funds for private school students as well, so long as they're not religiously... Let me... Right. Uh, I, I have this problem, Your Honor, and a very serious problem. The statute may speak of non-public students. Here's what happens or happened within the Title I program in New York City. 99 okay. point... Mr. Yes. Can't you answer oh, Justice Scalia? I didn't think you answered Justice Scalia's question. I'm sorry. You, you, you have no problem in principle with making public funds available to public schools and to private schools. It's only those private schools that are religiously affiliated that you have an objection to. Oh, I thought I, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Yeah. Uh, yes, my problem is with uh, constitutionally... Uh, with uh, the religious schools because of the Establishment Clause. But by way of answering a question... You have no problem with the Free Exercise Clause. I have no those, problem. Those, those parents must forego that, that subsidy, even for remedial purposes, if they happen to select a private school that is a religious school. I, I don't... And you see no, no free exercise problems with I, I, To the extent that I see a free exercise problem, 
I see it as being seriously overcome uh, because of the Establishment Clause problem. I have never agreed that the Free Exercise Clause enters into this picture at all. I do not believe that religious religious schools or religious school students have a free exercise right to receive public funds. I, I'm of the belief that you, and I think I, it happens all the time, that a public, uh, a, a government, federal, state, or local can provide funds for public schools and public school students without, without providing them for a religious you know, it's, it's not a matter of they're having a right. It's a matter of how rigidly one, one is, is able to apply the Establishment Clause without overriding very important values that are contained in the free exercise clause. And when you say to people that you must forego the entirety of the educational subsidy that the state provides in all forms, if you make a religious decision to send a child to a religious school, that certainly calls calls into play the values that are embodied in the free exercise clause. And I, to adopt the absolutist view of the establishment clause that you're proposing simply ignores that uh, that, that aspect of the matter. It seems oh, to me. I, I don't I don't have to adopt that view because I can see where if you had the religious school students obtaining their remedial instruction in public schools like the public school students do then they would, they would be able to get that instruction. Suppose they were showing that that, 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 that that alternative did not work. That alternative? Suppose they were showing that that alternative did not work. The students have to go there late, uh, in which case uh, they are, they're not efficient at absorbing their lessons. They have to go there during the midday, which disrupts the regular instruction and is very costly. Suppose it was shown that this was simply impractical. That question, Your Honor, uh, it, 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 contains the assumption that it is so. The assumption is that, that it's impractical, and I, my question is, what if that assumption is true? Uh, if the assumption was, was true, it would bear some weight. But the fact, the actual fact is... So, so, so the practicality does enter into our determination of whether there's an establishment violation? Uh, it, it would if it were factually warranted. May, may I suggest that it is not factually warranted that in the school year 86-87, the Chancellor and the Board of Education offered a program to the religious schools in New York City whereby 80%, 80% of those schools and their uh, students who were entitled to uh, participate in Title I could go to public schools to receive their remedial instructions that were within 10 minutes by walking or by bus to the matching public schools. And they refused that out of hand, out of hand, which brings up another question that I would point out to the court. Not only does uh, the New York City program, as it was in effect in uh, 1985, not only uh, are 99.56% of the so-called non-student, uh, uh, non, non-public students in the program uh, go to parochial schools, but the fact is that uh, this is not this is not a program that flows to the students, and I'll tell you why. Because the the program cannot even get to the parochial school students 
unless their parochial school authorities decide to enter into the program. It doesn't begin to flow directly to the, to, to the students. And when the religious schools, the parochial schools, have opted out of the program, as they did in 86-87, then the 50% of the uh, students that had been in the program were no longer in the program. The New York City, as a matter of fact, uh, there's one other factual uh, point that I wish to make, because it was uh, made for me by uh, the uh, petitioners. They stated that 11,000 11, of the, uh, the 22,000 uh, uh, religious school students who receive uh, this aid, that's 50% of them, 50% of the, uh, the uh, participating students, 50% uh, uh, of the entire religious school body receive uh, Title I uh, instruction. That's, a, that's an enormous amount of instruction. It is, it is not the situation uh, that has been brought up of a single deaf-mute student in Zobrest who uh, has the benefit of a, uh, a sign language interpreter. How, how does that affect uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, impose on the religious uh, school. It, it, uh, it doesn't affect them at all. But when you have a huge body of religious school students in a program like New York City receiving this aid, then it is no longer the attenuated aid that is readily distinguishable in, in Zobrest. I did want to cover uh, a point that uh, Justice O. o I assume that the state can provide buses to these uh, these parochial school students, right? They can provide Public services such as fire uh, fire protection. Oh, yes, Your And is that true, even if that advances the mission of the parochial school? I I don't see how how it advances the mission. You, you don't think busing students to go to the school advances the mission of the school? Does not. All right. I don't, I don't see how that does at all. And as a matter of fact, I, we point out in our brief that when in Everson against the Board of Education, that was uh, permitted, uh, the court noted that this was the very verge of, of the aid, if it could be called aid, that would go to uh, public school, uh, religious schools or religious school students. Uh, it, books, can, can you provide books to parochial school students? Uh, do that too, can't you? Uh, they, they, that doesn't they, help the mission either, does it? They can do that under Allen. Yes, I can't go back on Allen any more than I think the court... And on Zobrest, right. What? No more than you can on Zobrest. I don't go back I mean, on... It, it I, seems to me there is not... I don't go clear, back on Zobrest. It seems to me there's not this clear line you're trying to draw between any, uh, any assistance that the federal government provides to the accomplishment of the mission of parochial schools. It seems to me the line we've tried to draw is between assisting them in the accomplishment of their distinctively religious mission. You just simply cannot maintain the point that, that, that the state cannot or the federal government cannot at all assist the uh, parochial schools in the accomplishment of their purely sectarian, uh, uh, secular educational mission. The line that respondents draw, Your Honor, is as, as far as I'm concerned, as clear as clear can be. 
I can't go back on uh, Alan, although I never agreed with it. Uh, yes, uh, you can lend books uh, to uh, uh, religious schools and religious school students. But the distinction was made in Lemon by Chief, then Chief Justice Berger, who said, teachers are different from books. And our line is, don't send teachers in. You can't change what books do. Uh, Why are teachers different from books? Because teachers are uncontrollable. And I point this out. <laughs> yes. Yes. And uncontrollable and sometimes very unprofessional. I, I hear arguments made that Not we should rely argument. on Mr. the professionality. You, you can't seriously expect this court to accept that argument, that teachers are unprofessional and uncontrollable. I mean, that just flies in the face of experience and, and uh, reality. I think we have to assume that a public school teacher who is employed by the state and is told not to inculcate religion when teaching remedial reading will follow that instruction. I think that assumption is a fair one for us to make. When I said teachers are uncontrollable, uh, I may have uh, used a strong word, but not much stronger than Chief Justice Berger did in Lemon. And when he, when he pointed out that books are controllable because once they're printed uh, and they contain nothing that offends the establishment clause, we that's had, the end New York had 19 years of Title I education programs without a single identifiable incident of a public school teacher inculcating religion. And it worked fine until this court got the notion that that program somehow failed the Establishment Clause test. Those many years of non-reported violations are very easily explained, and Justice Breyer asked questions about, uh, 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 to uh, uh, Mr. Crotty, uh, about Judge Friendly's uh, opinion on that point. And I, I believe that's the, that, that speaks much better than I could ever speak. The reason that there are no reported violations is because the only people that could report a violation would be the violators themselves. What system of surveillance can prevail in a small classroom, whether it's in, inside uh, a, a, a religious school or in a bus? What system will... Uh, disclose violations of the Establishment Clause or conduct on the part of the teacher. What, what, is there in our, what is there in our civic tradition that says that surveillance is necessary to ensure that citizens obey the law? I, I did, I did. What is there in our civic tradition that says surveillance is necessary to ensure that citizens obey the law? Uh, in, in this particular case, I would assume it's necessary. Uh, this, this isn't merely Aguilar. This goes back to uh, Lemon against uh, uh, Kurzman, uh, Marburger, uh, Meek. Uh, it was uh, felt by the Any court. easier to bug the buses than it is to bug the classrooms? Is it any easier to, to bug, bug the buses than it is to bug the classrooms? No. If, if you have this problem about teachers inculcating religious values, why couldn't it happen on the bus? Uh, 
Yes. I mean, somehow the, the teacher magically, when she when she walks into the into the public into, into the parochial school classroom, is transformed from an impartial uh, employee of the state without any secular interest in mind to somebody who's going to teach religion. Yes. Why does that happen when she goes from the bus to the classroom? I, my answer to that has to be, Your Honor, one case at a time. We are opposing. Uh, the buses as mere adjuncts of the religious schools in a case now before the Second Circuit. And as a matter of fact... The if, buses are not even any good. You, if you want an honest answer from these respondents, yes, the buses are a violation because we see little difference between the buses right outside the door of the uh, r religious school and a Title I classroom inside the door. The, the, ch the students uh, tra tramp out the door, they go into class a few steps away, and then they go back, all fitted within the religious school uh, schedule. But, as I say, that, that's, that's another case. But what we're saying is simply that the mandate of this court uh, in several precedents was, yes, when you have public school teachers uh, inside a parochial school, uh, then you have to take some steps to see that they don't offend the establishment clause. And as a matter of fact, this isn't original with us. The Board of Education in Aguilar, in the original case, uh, uh, vaunted the, the system of surveillance that they had. Of course, it was a paper system that didn't work because you cannot send uh, an inspector into a classroom of one teacher and ten students and inspect the teacher not to be aware that he's being inspected for all kinds of uh, things. Before, before, you, before you finish, could you, could you spend a couple of minutes addressing the 60B question? That is, yes. the Solicitor General said, and he certainly uh, seems to me have a point, he says there must be a way procedurally to bring people outside an, uh, an injunction that requires them to spend $10 million a year if the law has undergone a sea change or is about to. They should have some method of testing it out. And, and he then said there is no other way that the Secretary of Education can't just give money to this. And I, I don't know, I think of declaratory judgment suits. I, I think of the Secretary possibly saying, I would give you money if, I think of some school board who wanted to do it, but is it right that there is no other way to test out this issue than the 60B motion here, in your opinion? If not, what is the other way? Yeah. My, my answer to that, uh, uh, Justice Breyer, is twofold. First of all, I do not agree that there is no other way. I think that there are cases coming up now in which uh, this court could address uh, the merits uh, of the determination in Aguilar. It's an odd calculus, isn't it, Mr. Karate, that uh, only the person who's most, uh, uh, Mr. Geller, excuse me, it's an odd calculus, isn't it, that only the party most affected uh, cannot get relief. Uh, that is odd, but I was going to answer just, but Justice Breyer uh, by saying, Justice Kennedy, that that is the precise situation in which many, many parties before this court have found themselves and they have had to wait, some of them, many, many years to have a case come before this court, very few cases, in which the determination in their case is overruled. Mr. Gell, on the question of cases, you mentioned there were cases. I am aware of only two. You are Okura in this field. Other than the 
case in Louisiana and the one in Minnesota, both in district courts. Is there any other case? There's uh, the case that uh, respondents uh, have now. It's suspended pending this case in the Second Circuit Court in which we are challenging uh, the uh, uh, present what we call the alternative plan in New York City, which relies largely on busing. We are challenging that, and we are challenging it on the theory that it is no different uh, from the situation in, in Aguilar in substance. Uh, if we prevail in, in that case, that case could come to... Uh, have your, have your opponents in that case urged that Aguilar be overruled? Oh, the opponents take precisely the same position that they are, that the respond, the petitioners are taking in this case. Yes, that Aguilar is no longer the law, and we would the district court be able to grant them that uh, that wish that Aguilar no longer be the, the law? district court al- already. Uh, 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 I mean, in that case, the district court pronounced Aguilar to be dead. Uh, the district court uh, distinguished uh, the buses from. Uh, yeah, but assume we couldn't distinguish. I mean, uh, yeah. do you think that district court, I mean, one of the arguments here is that, look, at this district court under 60B has, has no authority to say Aguilar is dead. Can you conceive of any, any case in which a district court would have the authority to pronounce Aguilar dead? Uh, depending on the facts of the case that are uh, developed. I, I, what one I don't understand that answer. I thought this court has said it's not the job of lower courts. It's for the Supreme Court to overrule its own precedent. Well, it's, it's not the job of lower courts, but uh, what has happened uh, in the, case, the Walker case in, in, in California is that uh, when uh, passed the, uh, the Court of Appeals out there was that the Court of Appeals, uh, that was a, a, a Chapter 2 case, a Title II case on uh, uh, books and equipment rather than a, uh, a Title I case. But there, the Court of Appeals did hold on the basis of the change in the law that the uh, uh, petitioners here argue. Well, it's good, uh, Mr. Geller. We have said very clearly that we overrule our own cases. It's, uh, and if that is so, then no matter how it comes up, if Aguilar is ever going to be overruled, we are going to have to say that a district court was wrong for doing the right thing. Yes. That is, it was wrong in obeying our instructions that it should follow Aguilar. Okay. I, no matter how it comes up, we're going to have to say that I never the court that did the right thing was wrong, aren't we? All right, uh, Justice Kelly, I never got to the second point of my answer uh, to Justice uh, Brewer, and that is... Uh, it was suggested by Justice Ginsburg. Uh, if it cannot be done under present rule, you don't break these rules, you don't bend them. Instead, you promulgate a new rule. And as, as Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg suggested, if there's such a hardship problem in this type of case, then the court should recommend a, a rule to Congress, and Congress should promulgate it uh, as part of the federal rules of civil procedure that you can have a rehearing out of date. Mr. Geller, even assuming that we're not done, I have assumed that there would be no difficulty for any school district, for example, to protest the secretary's position and litigate that. Uh, it seems to me that there are myriad cases that could come up here by which Aguilar could be re-examined without implicating the 60B problem 
if anybody wanted to take the trouble to bring it up. Am I missing something? Oh, well, that was the third part of my answer, ah. Justice Breyer's question. The citizens of this great country have devised a myriad of ways to uh, develop cases in order to test uh, uh, prior determinations of this court. I, I do not, I think it's, it's just uh, uh, fiction that there cannot be a case developed within a state, within a locality, where it, 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 the, the principle uh, cannot uh, be tested, uh, that public school teachers or guidance counselors cannot go into... Well, uh, 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 Mr. Jarrett, you're not suggesting that this court has never granted a rehearing out of time, are you? I thought it never had. So you, are you familiar with the Gondek case? Uh, I must not be, because I thought that uh, uh, I thought that uh, this this case was unprecedented. Could you not be familiar with the Gondek case? <laughs> what? Uh, I am not. Yeah. I, oh, I, I said that. Uh, yeah, I must admit. Yeah, I, I think believe, we, we I, I all are. I think he's answering my question, Justice. Yes, I, yes, I uh, did answer that. Uh, Gondek may have been an error on our part, but there was a case uh, 20, 25 years ago where we did grant a rehearing out of time. Out of time, and before a bench that was uh, so different from uh, the uh, bench that sat uh, on Aguilar, with not even uh, not even a single justice here that indicates that he would change his vote. Well, this this was perhaps two years out of time, not not as far out of very much out of time by our rule. Yeah. Uh, was, it, was it a question? I don't recall of of an action on, on a cert petition rather than a decision on the merits. I, it may, I, I don't know, I don't recall that Gondak was a decision on the merits as this was with a sharply divided court. I thought that that was a case involving um, um, a denial of a petition for review and then a rehearing well, on that denial. Having had to admit that I'm not familiar with Gondak, <laughs> I accept your explanation. <laughs> Mr. Geller, uh, can you give me, I mean, it's fine that, uh, that you say some other, some other district may be able to raise this issue. That's not very comforting in New York that's, uh, that's spending uh, $10 million a year. Is, is there any way that you think that this particular entity, that New York City, which is under now an injunction that it thinks does not comport with, with what this court has said the Constitution requires, is there any way that New York could raise it other than 60B? Uh, I do not see it at this late date. One of the, uh, and this would be an answer to uh, something that uh, Justice O'Connor suggested. This is an ongoing uh, injunction. Uh, but, and, and Are you not imaginative enough to, to, to find some way to provide relief to somebody who is, who is laboring under an injunction that is... Assumedly unconstitutional. That I obtained. <laughs> that you obtained, I, but just part it for present purposes, and, and, and the, the 60B issue assumes that. Assume that the law has changed, that Zobrest now makes it clear 
that the injunction was wrongly granted. Is, is there yes, no yes. way that we yes, give yes. relief to New York? Or to, yes. Just tell them, well, wait for somebody else to bring a lawsuit. Maybe you'll get lucky. I was about to answer Justice O'Connor's uh, uh, suggestion, and, and it will answer yours. Sure, there was a way. If, if the law had really changed here, and there was a change either in the law or the factual circumstances, yes, under rules of equity, you might modify uh, an injunction, uh, perhaps even an injunction that's a mandate on a constitutional point. But look what happened here. For 12 years after this injunction issued, the Board of Education was faced with the same cost and the same inefficiency, and they did nothing about it until uh, Curious Joel and the comments that uh, were made in Curious Joel about uh, Aguilar, which uh, don't have uh, the binding effect of law. But if the law had really changed, and if the factual circumstances had changed, yes, under rules of equity that Rule 60B uh, subsumes, uh, they, uh, these, these parties could have, the petitioners could have brought a case, but they didn't do that. Uh, and the law didn't change. As a matter of fact, we have pointed out that the very comments in Curious Joel showed very clearly that the law hadn't changed. And the comments were that Aguilar perhaps should be overruled in a proper case. And we say this is not a proper case. If we took the position that Zobrest had, in fact, undermined Aguilar to the point that there was nothing left of it, that it had, in fact, overruled it, even though we did not say that in express terms, then I suppose it would be proper for us to employ or to sanction the employment of Rule 60B uh, to, to grant the relief that they want. Do you agree? Yes. Yes, if you had done that, if the court had done it in uh, Zobrest. But I, I, I have to emphasize how much uh, respondents believe that Zobrest is distinguishable from uh, Aguilar and Grand Rapids and uh, Meek in the extent of the aid that goes, that flows to the public school. Of and, yet, it and yet the type of aid that's given uh, actually enables the sign language interpreter uh, to inculcate religion, if that's what's being taught. In a sense, it goes beyond what the parties are asking for here. In a way, it does. Yes, Your Honor. But with a single student, look at the difference. In this case, as has been pointed out, 50% of the students, 11,000 out of uh, 22,000, are being given aid. And what is the fullness of that? It's only one, one individual. He has this special privilege. There's nobody else in the country that can get the same kind of remedial uh, assistance. But it would still be much more attenuated than the aid. Well, That's the word that this is. Well, one individual. We adopted a principle that would apply to a lot of people. Well, the, the question, Your Honor, is did you apply, did, did you adopt a principle that overrules the cases in which the court has held that it's sometimes called massive aid or funding of religious schools is unconstitutional, as in Grand Rapids, as in uh, Meek against Pittenger? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. And the word that was used in uh, the court's opinion in Zobrest was that the aid that was given to that student was uh, was only attenuated aid. Uh, uh, thank you, Mr. Joe. I think you've answered the question. Uh, General Dellinger, you have less than a minute left. The line that this court has itself drawn in Ballin and Zobras is that a state may not, in effect, subsidize the religious functions of the parochial schools by taking over 
a substantial portion of their responsibility for teaching secular subjects. Justice Breyer, Justice Fulham was concerned about cases like Lemon and Grand Rapids. Here, there's no realistic danger of advancing religion. That was a, a, a entanglement was a solution in search of a problem. Justice O'Connor, your decision in Cooter in 1990 deals with abuse of discretion. Thank you. Thank you, General Dellinger. The case is submitted.